0: Or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to see you all, and uh, it's definitely nice to see this hall looking a little bit fatter today than last time. I am so aware of the fact that as I open the Word of God to you today, that it's, it's a huge sobering task and it's not a thing that we take lightly. So I'd just like to stop before we open the Word of God to ask God to help us as we just ponder over a few words, just a few words in the text of Scripture today. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we just gather here again today, and we're so conscious of our weakness. Lord, so conscious of our own attitudes that we can do these things in our own power. We have the faculties to evaluate. We have the faculties with which to make judgments for ourselves. Lord, we, we honestly think that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to abandon Our confidence in ourselves. Help us to abandon all effort to think that we know, think that we can make better judgments and better evaluations than you can. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us today to throw ourselves on your mercy. Help us, Lord, to come before your throne today with humble hearts and say, God, you know, you know better. You know my heart, you know my failures. You know my weakness. You know my difficulty to understand. Lord, please help me. Help me to see. Help me to understand. Help me to believe. Help me to stand up in hope and be strong in this dark and messed up world. Lord, please help us today, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. So. In my, in my personal devotions a couple of weeks ago, one verse in Scripture stood out to me and it, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that verse for weeks. So when Andre asked me if I would preach this week while he went to Kabungani, I said to him, oh yeah, I know exactly which verse I'm going to preach on. So this is the verse. You might find this verse a bit strange, but I trust that as we go through just a few words in this text, God will help you to see why it is that this text has really, really been on my heart. And the text is Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. And Genesis 3, verse 7 from the NIV says Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Full stop. What a terrible, terrible moment to suddenly realize that you're naked in the fullest sense, not only being unclothed, but standing before God and before every eye that sees you vulnerable and exposed. This this verse describes not just a crisis in the moment in the lives of Adam and Eve, but this describes... An existential experience for you and I in this world. This is a real struggle that you and I struggle with every single day. This sermon today is not meant to be an academic um, evaluation of these words, you know, with the grammar and the syntax and all of the the smart things. What this is doing, this is meant to describe today. The human experience. The experience that you experience as a human even now while you're sitting in your chair today. This is meant to describe your problem and my problem as human beings. It's meant to describe God's solution to this problem that you and I are facing today. And every day. As you go out of here, you face Monday morning, you do your work week, you keep moving this is your problem this is what you're facing this is the struggle that you have every day now i see on this presentation that while i was preparing this i put some pretty fancy fonts in here pretty gnarly sort of fonts you know to to communicate what i'm trying to communicate but i see with uh, with windows and all that stuff things change you know how fonts you know how fonts work guys so that's part of the fall okay it's part of what i'm describing things don't work in this world okay so let's start with it. Let's start with that verse. Let's begin. Of course, the, the verse begins with a chronological marker, okay? Then the eyes of both of them were open. There was a point in time when this happened for Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. The the environment in which they've been living is absolutely wonderful. Just imagine with me, if you can just close your eyes and imagine with me nothing. Existing except the living God. Absolutely nothing except the glorious eternal God. Suddenly, in that space, and I can't even say space because space didn't exist before God created space. Suddenly, God speaks. And with this massive roar, or I don't know, as massive explosion, this blast, God creates the heavens and the earth. Whoosh! A reality that never existed before. Every single molecule of this created order is absolutely brand new, crisp. Almost like when you go to an ATM and you draw money and you say, wow, these notes are brand new. They're still sticking together. They're so flat and so crinkly. The whole universe is absolutely brand new. Every single molecule like a baby Absolutely brand spanking new. And inside of that beautiful environment, God creates Adam and Eve on the final day of His created work. And they have the most beautiful existence that the mind can imagine, and beyond what you and I can imagine. We don't even know what paradise is, we don't even know the pleasures of paradise. We don't know what it's like to be li- like to be able to live naked in a garden and be comfortable day and night and walk with God in the cool of the day. We don't know what it's like to have, to have the thought of facing God and feel comfortable and like, "Oh, God's here. That's wonderful." I mean, now, even as believers, some of us would be afraid if God came in here and spoke to us because every one of us feels unclean. We feel naked. We feel exposed. We feel like we're not ready for God to come in and sit here and say, all right, people, let's let's have a discussion about your week. And you're like, hold on, no, 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 not this week, God, not this week. Let me try harder next week, and then we can have that discussion. But Adam and Eve welcomed the presence of God. What a beautiful moment for them as they see God walking in the garden and they love to walk with Him. They have communion with God. In a beautiful, brand new paradise. They have absolute privilege. The only man and woman on the planet, and God's resources, the whole of God, is available for just them. Just that one couple. Imagine that. You know, for prayer, you might think, well, I can pray to God, and I have the ear of God to to myself. But imagine being the only man and woman on the planet and the whole eternal, glorious, infinite God is there walking with you at your disposal. You can speak to him and yours are the only voices he hears in the whole universe. What privilege. What beautiful communion. And inside of that communion, as you all well know, God utters this one command. And he says to Adam, You are free, Adam, my Adam. In fact, one of the Gospels calls Adam the son of God. You know, what a close relationship. God calls him his son. Adam, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. Don't touch that tree. One command. Everything is beautiful. One single command. We well know what happened. We well know how Satan appears in the garden in the form of a serpent, in the form of a snake, and deceives Eve into eating the fruit. She presents it to Adam, and he eats. And in an instant, in that moment, I don't know what fruit that was, but in a a moment, then, in that then moment, then, the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, the thing that has struck me about this one moment, and I don't know, maybe you've seen this long before I have. Maybe I'm just slow, and I just noticed this recently. But I noticed that when Satan came to Adam and Eve, remember God said to Adam that that when you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Satan comes along when Eve says, no, 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 we can't eat this because we'll die. Satan says, you won't die your eyes will be opened. And what happens in verse 7 as soon as they've eaten of the fruit their eyes are opened it doesn't say then in that moment they died it says in that moment their eyes were opened suddenly they could see things that they couldn't see before. And I began to think over these last few weeks I began these few weeks I began to think what could they see now that they couldn't see before? Their eyes were opened to a whole new world that they couldn't see before. And as I thought about that, I realized that when God said, the day you eat of that fruit, or when you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, that their eyes being opened is synonymous. It's the same thing. It's the same process as dying spiritually, except that there's there's a horrible, horrible twist to this moment that we're looking at, this one moment. Click of the, the one second hand of the clock. In that moment, their eyes were open. What happened in that moment? Something was lost in that moment. They died. They lost the ability to see God. They lost the ability to see how God reasons. They lost the ability to see how privileged they were. They lost paradise. They lost communion with God. They lost all of the sense of of the wonder of God's created order. They lost something absolutely, ma- absolutely massive. You stare at this and you're like, how could we lose something so big? Their eyes are opened, so they've lost the ability to see, but they've also gained the ability to see something else, haven't they? What are they looking at? What can they see? What is this thing that they're looking at? that this verse is speaking about that drives them to the point where they're going to go and sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. What made them do that? What motivated them? What were they looking at? They became dead and blind to the whole God-centered world, completely unable to see the beauty of the paradise that God had created. And their eyes were opened to a whole world of deception, Obviously, when when they the text says that they then they their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. It doesn't only mean that they realized they didn't have clothes on. It means that they were exposed. They suddenly realized, oh no, we've been busted. We stand before God, and God is looking at us with an accus uh, an accusing eye. I mean, you and I know what that's like, don't we? We know what it's like. Especially when you meet with people who are godly people and they look at you and you think they can see right into you. When they look at you, they ask you one question and they see you fumbling the answer and you're like, hmm. They don't even have to say anything. You know that they can see your folly. They can see your weakness. They can see your ignorance. They can see your immaturity. I don't know. Do godly people have that effect on you? They certainly have that effect on me. When I look at people who are more mature, they just have to give me a look and I realise, hmm, do I feel small? You know, do I feel like a little wimp that hasn't been anywhere? You know what's you know what's scary about this moment? Is that they've sinned against God, they've they've defied God, but they were not overpowered in the garden, were they? Did did God allow Satan to come into the garden? as this huge, you know, the huge glorious angel that he was. Did God allow him to come settling down on the scene, you know, darkening the sky with all of his power and saying, Aah! you know, in front of Eve? And she's like, Aah! and and he says, Eve, you eat the fruit now. And, and Eve's, yes, yes, I'll eat it. You know, there was no intimidation. God didn't allow Satan to come bursting in there and to intimidate them. He comes in the form of a snake, in the, in the form of a serpent. Obviously, Eve is not afraid. This is a supernatural world. I mean, Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with God himself. It's an enchanted paradise. It's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Of course, a talking snake is not going to be a big shock to them, like, oh, a talking snake. What's this? They've been walking with God. You can imagine Eve like, Wow, this is wonderful. I didn't know this little snake could talk. I mean, of course, shes it's enchanting. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And he's telling me about this fruit. Mm, yeah, you're right. It looks quite nice, doesn't it? So God doesn't overpower them. So when the eyes of both of them are opened and they realize they're naked, they, they're not standing before God as victims who have been overpowered by the massive power of Satan. They're exposed because they have willingly done what God said without any force, you know, without any pressure being put on them. All they have to blame is their own failure, their own weakness, their own shame. So their eyes are opened and they look at themselves and they feel ashamed. Oh no. What have we done? That's exactly what God says to Adam. What have you done? He doesn't say, what did Satan make you do? Adam, what have you done? And you can imagine the shame in Adam as his eyes are opened and he stands and he looks at himself. As he stands there in front of every created animal, every creature that he has named, one after the other. And those animals looked at him as their ruler. You remember, God put Adam in the garden to, to represent God, to rule over those animals as God rules over the universe. And now every one of those animals, you can imagine, the dogs and the lions, and you know every animal you can imagine looking at Adam like, hmm, I see you. You can imagine him looking at the eyes and like, don't look at me, don't look at me. I mean, you know what it's like when you, when you eat something and there's a dog looking at you and he wants, he wants your food. No, this is mine. And suddenly you realize, yes, I'm feeling a bit greedy. The dog, all he wants is a little bit, you know. And I'm too stingy just to give the dog something, you know. You know how dogs make you feel. Imagine Adam walking in the garden and every animal he's looking at. And the animals are all looking at him. You know, if they had hands, I can imagine them going like this. Staring at Adam. The angels who sang Job 38 when God is speaking to Job. He speaks about, he asks Job if he was there when he laid the foundations of the earth and the sons of God, the angels, were shouting and singing and rejoicing. Obviously, one of the moments when those angels were shouting and singing is when God makes a being just like himself. And now, suddenly, this being has done the most ungodlike thing you can ever imagine. He's defied the living God, he's become unlike God to a large degree. And those angels, you can imagine them gasping in shock as Adam and Eve defy the living God and they stand there in their shame and there's nothing to fix that shame. They're stuck. They're trapped in that shame for good permanently, forever. They disobeyed God and they have fallen into loss that we cannot even comprehend. That's the one half of this thing. Loss, loss, loss they've died to something beautiful they've died to something wonderful a whole chunk of their purpose in this world has been cut away they can't glorify god anymore they've provoked him and one of the things that i can't get over in this text is how personal it is you know how personal nakedness is you know you can even be in your own house you know in your own bathroom for example and somebody happens to walk in and suddenly it's personal you know, you're walking around in a state of undress and somebody sees you and it's like, oh, careful, careful. It's like, you know, it's personal to be naked. And here we have Adam and Eve standing naked, but it's not just nakedness. It's the sort of nakedness that they've encountered because they've defied the living God. It's, it's a very personal thing. It's a It's a poking a finger in God's eye and saying, take that, God. That's what we think of you. I think if we had to put this experience of of nakedness, this experience of having their eyes opened into a right context, we could describe it as Adam and Eve not being satisfied with what God has given them, but wanting something that God has deliberately chosen not to give them. That's why I said to them, don't touch the tree. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Remember, Eve said, don't even touch it. That's how seriously they understood God's command. They said, "We want what God has chosen not to give us. God, we want what you've chosen. We don't care, God, about your evaluation of the situation. We want to know good and evil. We know about that. We want to know good and evil. We want to understand what evil is. We, we're not happy that you are the only one who knows what evil is, and we don't know. We'll we'll make a plan." So we'll get something that you've chosen for us not to have. And you know, the sad thing is that even though when God commands Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they know intellectually that there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you realize, Eve, we could know good and evil? You know, there's a fact. They understand this fact. But knowing that fact has not had any impact on them, has it? They're still perfect. They're still in the garden. But in the moment when they eat of that fruit and and suddenly the knowledge of good and evil becomes an experience for them. It's become real. In that moment, that then moment, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They suddenly realized in that moment that that knowledge of good and evil was too heavy to bear. It's too much. It's too heavy. Can you imagine them standing before God, staggering under the weight of this new knowledge? This is dreadful. This is terrible. How are we ever going to escape from under this weight, this knowledge of good and evil that is oppressive, that's burdensome? It's terrible. It makes me feel sick and ashamed and and guilty. I don't like the knowledge of evil, God. I don't like it. And I think that this is the experience that you and I experience a lot of the time. We don't like knowing evil, do we? We don't like the fact that in one sentence, any one of us here could destroy a relationship with anybody else in this church. I mean, you know that's true. You know that any of us could sit at a table having coffee. You know that I could say something to you that would make you hate me and want to distance yourself from me for the rest of my life or the rest of your life. I know that any of you is capable of doing the same to me. Isn't it dreadful to know because because of the fact that we know what we like inside? I know how perverted I am. I know what a failure I am. I know what kind of shame sin brings me. I know how much damage I can do to other people. And sadly, you, and, you know how much damage I could do to you. We can smash each other. We can damage each other. And it's absolutely amazing in the church. God preserves this group of people in relationships of love in spite of this terrible nature, this, this knowledge of good and evil inside of ourselves. I don't know if you feel the heaviness of this. I don't know if you, if you hear what I'm saying and saying, yeah, I know. Even now today, I can even think in my mind of, of evil that I've done. And I just wish it would end. I just wish my longing for sin would come to an end. I just wish that Jesus would burst through the scene and take me away from here because I'm sick of sin. I'm absolutely sick of it. How long to be back in that state of paradise when the knowledge of good and evil is, is not a thing for me anymore. I want communion with God. I want to be free from the temptation to sin against other people. To be angry with other people. To lust after other people. To be greedy. To be lazy. Etc, etc, etc. Anxiety. Day after day after day. Living in, in in a state of worry. Here's Adam and Eve in the state of worry. they you know, probably eating their fingernails. They're thinking God is coming into the garden. God is coming into the garden. What are we going to do? How do we hide? What are we going to do with ourselves? We're naked. We can't take this away. How do you take nakedness away? I mean, clothes haven't been invented yet. And as soon as the act of sin is complete, you know that condemnation rushes upon you and it's really really difficult to get rid of that sense of condemnation then the eyes of both of them were opened what were their eyes opened to they realized they were naked so of course they were naked before maybe we could start one step behind that we could say of course they could see before couldn't they I mean, they could see the garden. They could see the animals. Adam names the animals. Uh, God creates all of the trees in the garden that were had two characteristics. They were, one, pleasing to the eye, and two, they were good for food. But they were pleasing to the eye, weren't they? So obviously, Adam and Eve could see. So when it says their eyes were opened, obviously, he's not just saying they were blind before. Now they could see. They, he's talking about them being able to see something specific. And the thing, specific thing they saw that they, is that they were naked. Obviously, they were naked before and they knew they were naked before, but how come their nakedness now suddenly becomes an issue? So before their nakedness had been something beautiful. Their nakedness had been their glory. They had walked in the garden and I believe what many theologians have said that when God created Adam and Eve, they were clothed with light. They were shining beings like the angels. They shone. They shone like God when God appears on the mount with uh, Peter, James, and John. And he's he's like lightning. He's clothed with, with bright shining light. God is said to clothe himself with light as a garment in Scripture. So I believe that Adam and Eve were clothed. Even though they were naked, you could see their human forms. But they had a glory about them, a shining, beautiful glory, a radiance about them. So that when the animals could see Adam and Eve walking in the garden, they could see the glow coming, they could see the shine, they could see the the wonderful rays of their presence shining on all the trees and the leaves, and and every animal came to bask in their glow, to be close to them like, like we huddle in the sunshine on a cold day. Say, Oh, so nice to be next to these. They're so much like God. Beautiful, so nice to be with Adam and Eve as it was so nice to be with God. And I think that what he's talking about, when they realized they were naked, they possibly at that point lost that shine. They lost that glory. They lost the, the beauty that God had clothed them with before. And suddenly they fell into this painful state of ordinariness. Just, just this flesh and blood man and just this flesh and blood woman and Adam and Eve look at each other and, like, oh, this. why does this suddenly look so ordinary now? You, you, you know, Adam, you don't amount to much. And, well, Eve, look at you. Like, painful nakedness. A nakedness where the ordinariness of everything just swallows up all of your thoughts. And you start looking at a, a being made in the image of God as small. And ordinary and limited, and that's all you amount to. Isn't that the way we experience life a lot of the time? We go for something big, we long for something, some big, shiny goal, and we get there, and that's all it is. It's just a new car. Hmm, Okay. It still needs to be maintained, still needs tires, and oil, and filters. You know, the new job. I didn't realize this boss had such a bad temper. You know, uh, it's like a nice office, but uh, this guy that I've got to work with. etc., etc. I like the way Hope thinks about relationships. And we talk about these things quite often. And it's so nice, the way she describes new relationships. You'll see it again and again. Um, a guy meets a girl. And it's like, whoo everything's amazing and you I don't know well this is a guy's perspective anyway he can't sleep can't think about anything else he wants to talk to her all the time he doesn't want to wear her out but he, he wants to talk all the time so he just is freaking out but he's just trying to be cool the whole time and trying to be normal and chilled but you know what that often happens but there comes a point when the excitement of meeting a new person disappears and it just sort of calms down and gets ordinary and then there's, you know, then there's the whole process of going out long enough to see if you're ready to get engaged or, you know, whatever structure of marriage you use. And then maybe when you get married, like when I went, in, when I went on honeymoon, when I got married, I thought, yes, this is going to be the greatest thing on earth. And it turned out, honestly, turned out to be one of the, the worst times that I ever went away with my brand new wife it was like, oh, this is. This is not that great we just struggle to get on with each other with all this wonderful stuff i mean you guys don't experience that <laughs> was so wonderful that um we were disillusioned you know at what it would be like to live so close to each other the whole time all the time all the time all eventually it's like okay i just need a break and my marriage wasn't all like that eventually we would say to each other, you know, I wish we could just go on honeymoon right now. This would be great. You know, right, this time would be great because now we've learned to love each other. But my point is that even the things that you think are going to be the greatest experience on earth, like honeymoon. I mean, wow! It's a, the honeymoon phase. We talk about it idealistically. But for Adam and Eve, the honeymoon phase was gone. They were seeing too much. They were irritated by each other. Two people on the face of the earth. And Adam understands he can't trust Eve. And Eve looks at Adam and she can't trust him. What a terrible reality. I mean, you and I, we can look around at each other in this room. And there's some things that you will never tell even a person that you're married to. Never mind somebody somebody that you're not that close to. You wouldn't go and tell somebody that you think doesn't like you. You won't go and tell them sensitive information that you think they're going to use against you. There's a there's a degree of fear. There's a degree of fear at, of being exposed and being exposed to shame and feeling uncovered and naked. And imagine Adam and Eve in this um, relationally provoking God and standing there shamefully exposed. They feel unsafe. They have been reduced to shame. They stand there feeling like I don't even want to live anymore. What a dreadful reality. I know that many of you here struggle with this a lot. And I've had to struggle through this a lot. The ordinariness of life. How miserable life can be. And how unsatisfying life can be. What is this? It's the knowledge of good and evil. It's the knowledge that there's deception and wickedness. There's there's hostility between us. It's a terrible, terrible, burdensome reality that Adam and Eve uncovered. They were disgraced in the eyes of every creature. Their nakedness that used to be their glory, that used to be a wonderful thing that they celebrated and loved, was something that was now associated with guilt and grief and pain. And distorted devilish desires. And destruction. Imagine Adam and Eve looking at each other for the first time and understanding what lust feels like. Before they had no clue what lust was. It's still a strong desire. But suddenly Adam starts lusting. And Eve, maybe she starts lusting as well. Maybe Eve starts being greedy. Maybe she starts being dissatisfied. Maybe Adam, in that moment, if you just read a few verses later on in Genesis 3, maybe Adam thinks this stupid woman, I'm going to make sure she doesn't do something like this again. Hey? And Eve is like, you know, this guy, You must just look at me like that again and I'll clap him. I mean, that never happened in paradise. You know, you don't talk to me in that way. What a distortion, what misery, what knowledge of good and evil. What a terrible new discovery this was for them as they realize they're naked and they stand there in front of each other. They distrust each other. She wants to attack him. He wants to rule her harshly. And they discover that their nakedness cannot be taken away. What can they do? To go back to where they were before. Now they have the knowledge of good and evil. How are they going to get rid of this? How are they going to reverse this? And this knowledge is going to be with them forever. Imagine throughout the ages and ages of a lost eternity. Men and women and children before God. Understanding all this knowledge. The the filth and the shame and the anger. The cursing, the bitterness before God. Screaming out against God in in a sense of like, I've been wronged. I've been wronged. What have you done, God? Even Adam, you remember when God confronts him and says, what have you done? What does Adam say? God, is your fault. Can't you see? You know, anybody with half a brain can see God that you created us. You put this stupid woman with me to deceive me. And what was I supposed to do? It's your fault, man. He's lost God's ability to reason. He can't reason like God reasons anymore. To him, this whole logic, this fallen logic, this knowledge of good and evil seems reasonable. It seems rational. And he looks at God and it's God's fault. And the individual in a lost eternity is going to think like that forever and ever. It's God's fault that I'm here. God is the the one that's in the wrong. I'm right. I'm innocent. So what do they do? How are they going to fix this situation? We've got a plan. So, as a result of this, as the result of suddenly seeing this horrible nakedness, this horrible ordinariness, this total mess, this destruction of everything that they had before, they say, all right, we'll fix this. We'll fix this problem. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Ta-da! Look at us, we've solved the problem. Easy as that. Of course the problem's solved, isn't it? Somebody looks at you and says, Hey, who broke this thing? Easy, man. Pull out a little lie. Oh, it wasn't me. Problem solved. Somebody shoots somebody because, you know, you stole some money from me. I'll shoot you dead. The cops come, I just deny it. Ta-da, fig leaf, problem solved. All I have to do is take a fig leaf, put it at the right patch. I'm not naked anymore. <laughs> what kind of reasoning is that? I mean that's what sin does. This is what the knowledge of good and evil does. It's like it's like our politicians in in some instances where millions and millions of rands have been stolen. And like, you sit in court for months just denying that you ever did it, and then problem solved. No hassle. So, their desperate sense of condemnation forces them to hide in some way. Okay, well, if I can hide my nakedness, I'll be cool. And one of the problems is that they know God is coming. They're in the garden, they've sinned, And they're like, oh no, oh no, oh no, God is coming. They're afraid of God. Why are they afraid of God? I mean, before they had beautiful communion. Did they have any example of God pouring out His wrath on any creature? Never. To them, God has only been kind. He's only been beautiful. He's only been wonderful. But now, because of the knowledge of good and evil, they begin to look at God as a person that they need to be afraid of, because God is unreasonable. God is going to come and look at us in our misery and our shame, and He's going to judge us. I don't know if anyone's heard this term in our world before. Don't judge me. You don't have any right to judge me. What are they saying to God? They're thinking in their minds, God's going to come and judge me. He's got no right to judge us. They're hiding in the garden. They're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they begin to feel fearful they feel aggressive against God. They begin to feel selfish. They are self-justifying in everything they've done. They want to accuse God, like Adam accusing God. They become hostile. And as they see God, or as they anticipate that moment where they see God, can you imagine, God is appearing, and I'm, I'm using my imagination here, okay? The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm presuming this is my imagination, okay? I'm presuming that as Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, naked, that God himself appeared in human form and he himself too was naked. Beautiful nakedness. His beautiful masculinity shining with glory. He was a beautiful creature. And now God is going to appear in that same way, in the way that Adam and Eve were. In that beautiful, excellent wonderful, glorious humanity. And they're going to look at God and they're going to be like, oh, we can't even look at Him. You know, almost like, turn the light down, God. We can't see. Like rats running when the lights are turned on when you go into a workshop or something at night and the rats scurry because the lights are on and they can't handle it. You can imagine Him thinking, yeah, He's going to come here in all of His perfection. Like glorious and everything. And, you know, He's going to come and You know, tell us we're wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong. What are we going to say to him? What are we going to say? Yeah, hey, I tell you, just blame him. That'll fix the problem. I mean, what kind of reasoning is this, really? So they're afraid because God's going to come and they're scurrying around trying to make a plan and he's going to judge them. And their big solution is to take fig leaves and tie them around their waists. And I did a little bit of study on this particular phrase here to find out what they actually did. I mean, how do you sew fig leaves together? And it turns out that the best we can get is that they made what we would call today a loincloth. You know, they weren't they weren't like sufficiently covered. They they had very minimal leaves on their bodies. They just just in the right places, okay? And I began to think, why? When you've got a let's say Let's say I was standing there at the traffic lights, okay, and you looked out of the gate, and I was standing naked in the intersection there, but I had a fig leaf. You would say, "Hey, Alan's standing in the intersection and he's naked," because you would be able to see that I'm naked, okay? You, uh, you'd hardly see the fig leaf from this distance. That's my point. You know, they they're basically naked, but a fig leaf is covering, you know, their private parts. Um, what was it? It made me think. What was it about human beings that you know, you can, you can put a, a little costume on, like a bikini or something, you go swim in the sea, you're clothed. But you're actually naked, aren't you? I mean, most of you are sticking out. What makes human beings cover particular parts of their body and not other parts of their body to call themselves not naked? And I think that the answer to that question is in Adam and Eve's sense of shame. Suddenly they understand good and evil. Suddenly they realize we're naked and we're exposed what was god's command to them he told them to multiply and fill the earth and he told them to subdue the earth you know to subdue the earth and to fill it to multiply so now they're on earth they they you know they're going to subdue the earth as well as they can but they've got to multiply can you imagine what it was like for adam and eve to think you know what when we have children we're going to produce the same as we are we're going to produce shame We're going to produce a guilty generation. Suddenly, sexual relations for them became a shameful thing because through that they're going to fill the earth. We're going to fill the earth with this. What a terrible thing. People overwhelmed and burdened with the sense, this knowledge of good and evil where we stand before God. And I think it's, you know, just my opinion. I mean, the Bible's not saying this, but I think it's possibly got to do with with. Procreation, that they're going to produce more like themselves. They're going to perpetuate the problem. They're going to perpetuate a whole whole race of people who are conscious of all these miseries that they've brought the human race into. Isn't it remarkable that as they stand in this terrible state, they have a pivotal moment. Obviously, you know, to us, we would have done this, wouldn't we? We would have said, oh, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive us for what we've done. We stand before you naked and exposed. We've done what you commanded us not to. Please forgive us. Isn't it remarkable that they don't even do that? They say, you know, the only solution we can pull out here is a fig leaf. We can hide from God. How sad it is that they perpetuate the sin. They perpetuate the shame. Suddenly, with this knowledge of evil, they can perpetuate their misery and they can go further. Isn't it amazing that when God comes into the garden, He doesn't destroy them in an instant? And isn't it amazing that when God comes into the garden, not only does He not destroy them in an instant, He allows them to compound their sin By discussing this thing among themselves. So my sinfulness spills over onto other people. And other people are influenced and they become more sinful as a result of my influence on them. And the same, the other way around, I become more sinful because of other people's sin on me. And it accumulates and it compounds generation after generation until when the Lord Jesus comes. Remember, He said, as it was in the days of Noah. Dreadful, 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 heartbreaking days, the Lord Jesus will come and he's going to burst upon a shameful, shameful world. And that world might be us. While we're sitting here in a service or working at work or driving a car, Jesus Christ will come and he's going to burst onto a shameful generation. Adam and Eve choose to lie. They choose to make excuses. They ch- choose to shift blame even to God Himself. They try to normalize their sin into innocence. Isn't that what psychology does today? It wants uh, what a lot of people do to be called normal. We've got so many messed up ideologies around us today that want to normalize sin. Gay pride. I can see that in the Garden of Eden. can see it in our... The day in which we live. Any solution to the problem that doesn't have God as its central focus is a fig leaf solution, isn't it? It's just, it's a mockery of God. It's a delusion of a mind that is conscious of good and evil. And it thinks, this this little fig leaf is going to save me. This is going to fix the problem. I will be okay before God with this leaf. What a disastrous process of thought. You can look around you today. You drive in your car in the traffic or you sit in a taxi. You look at the faces of the people around you. And in the faces of those people, crowding through a mall or just trying to walk home from work, you see they've had a hard day you look at your own face, you see lines on your face. You know you're tired. Sin has made you weary. The knowledge of evil has made you weary. You can you can read the years of sadness and pain and disillusionment in people's faces. The fact is that nobody's life turns out the way they thought it would. Nothing ever happens the way you, you hope it will, does it? It always disappoints. It always leaves you longing for more. You see people laughing in pain. There's so much pain in this world. Every one of us carries such a burden of pain. And we can laugh and we can joke and we can carry on, but none of us can deny the fact that there's pain. Online videos, you just flick through YouTube. Everybody's trying to show you this is the ultimate life. This is wonderful. You know, this is the future. If you could just be free like me, toss your job, just sell everything you own and just go and live in the bush, swim in a river, catch fish, you know, look at me, I'm living the life. You've seen those videos, hey. Everybody trying to avoid this reality. But it's here. Fig leaves are not going to cover it. The life in the jungle, going to live on a tropical island where nobody knows where you are and just sun tanning every day. It's a fig leaf solution. God is here. God is looking. We're exposed before the living God. Even in this church, you know that you have pain in your heart. You know that your life is not turning out the way you hoped. You know nothing is ideal the way you want it to be ideal, and you know that you live with pain you know that to a degree you live with guilt and shame. This is an existential struggle. People believe that there's something bigger, something better, something greater, something higher, something more satisfying, something less ordinary. And as a result, you and I are plagued with restlessness. We can never stop until we find the place where we're back in paradise. Are we going to find paradise by using fig leaves? No. We believe, we honestly believe that we were made for something bigger and we just can't get there. We can't come to the experience of something bigger. As one commentator said, it's like a beautiful song that you heard long ago. and You just can't remember where you heard it or what the words were, but it makes you cry. You're like, oh remember that you can't quite describe it but it's like a tune from ancient times that keeps haunting you we long for paradise don't we people struggle their whole lives trying to get back what we've lost by losing themselves in academics arts, music, accomplishments fig leaves one fig leaf after the next and as soon as that fig leaf withers you've got to get another one because that one doesn't work anymore They try to present themselves, we do, don't we? We try to present ourselves as more accomplished than we actually are. We try to cover our nakedness and our shame and our guilt and our loss by doing something, by appearing impressive, by qualifying ourselves, by becoming people of purpose. My life has meaning. We believe that we have a right to happiness in this world. We believe we have a right to fullness and satisfaction and will even use religion in order to do that. We'll be religious just to feel satisfied and to feel that we're in the right place. But like Adam and Eve, we will not turn to the true worship of the living God. There's just so much that distracts us. We, we can't believe that the worship of the living God really is the true thing. Why? Because in that moment, then, the eyes of both of them were opened. In that moment, there was a loss. And the loss is that God-centered worldview. That is the hardest thing you're going to... The hardest task that you're ever going to have in this world is to understand this world from God's perspective. To see that God is right and I'm wrong. And the thing that we gained is a world, a whole world view that fights against God's perspective completely and perpetually. So I'm going to finish with this. And this section really only needs to be really short. We started with something lost and something gained. We lost perspective of God, God's attitude, God's mind, God's heart, God's paradise, God's communion. And we, we looked at what we gained, an anti-God worldview where we think we can fix the problem with something as small as a fig leaf. We're hostile toward God, we feel ashamed, we feel exposed, we feel naked before God. And that drives—that that is a, a motivation that drives us day after day. You can identify with all of the godless misery that we've gained and have tried to remedy day after day with silly little solutions. But what is the solution to this problem? Obviously, the only solution is to go back to God. To have a look at God, like Adam and Eve should have done in that instant, then, that then moment. They should have turned to God and said, God, have mercy on us. We need to go back to what we've lost. We've lost God. We've lost relationship with God. We've lost paradise that surrounds God. We've lost communion with God. We've lost God brimming with pleasure in us as his creatures. And I just want this one phrase to stick in your mind if you forget everything I've said. That God is giving paradise back and more to individuals. What an amazing reality that as you sit here today, aware of your own fallenness, your ordinariness, your shame, your nakedness, being exposed, the longing for something greater, the longing for more. Isn't it absolutely wonderful? That as you sit in your seat, you can do exactly what Adam and Eve failed to do. You can come to God and you can say, God, have mercy on me. All I can see is this knowledge of good and evil, and I cannot even see the world from your perspective anymore. God, have mercy on me and forgive me for my sin. God, receive me as your child. God, grant me back paradise. And the wonderful thing is that through that, God grants you the Spirit of God to take up residence inside of your heart and to begin to change your thinking bit by bit by bit. So that you can see the world from God's perspective. You no longer say, God, it's your fault that I'm in this situation. not surprised that I'm sinning so much because it's because of you. And suddenly we come to God and we realize God is the only one who's innocent. God is glorious. God is beautiful. And at the touch of his finger, he's giving spiritual life to individual upon individual. And he's radically transforming lives. So that we are not only able to see that beautiful paradise, but we're going to see so much more. We're going to come into glory that is unspeakable forever and ever through our Lord Jesus Christ. Full restoration forever and ever. So I would encourage you today, throw away the fig leaves and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance. Lord, we are so conscious today of our weakness, even as we sit here in this room. You know, Lord, that even as Christians, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world to live as us and die as us. But we are still so conscious, Lord, that you really have saved weak material. You've saved shameful people. You've, sh- you've saved people who just absolutely deserve nothing from you. We've defied you. We've sinned against you willingly and perpetually. Lord, please help us today in this moment to have one of those then moments. Then the eyes of those at Living Hope Church on that morning were opened and they could see the glory of God. They could see paradise that as the naked Jesus hung on the cross dying in shame as a human being, He raised us up into glory so that we can be admitted to that glorious paradise again. Please help us, Lord, We pray these things in Jesus' name.